Welcome to another episode of the Belter Wire. My name is William Brown, content manager, and today I'm joined by Chef Michael Solovey. Chef Michael refined his cooking skills while working at the famed Roy's Hawaiian Fusion restaurants before expanding his horizons eastward and moving to Shanghai, China, where he was fortunate to work with numerous world-class chefs and restaurateurs from around the world. He has been involved with the opening of 24 food and beverage establishments, including his own restaurant, Block, where he featured foods inspired by his Slavic upbringing in Chicago. Chef Michael taught over 1,400 cooking classes before bringing his culinary skills to the Belter Superstore in January of 2019, where he now works as a cooking school and event center coordinator. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing great, Bill. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thanks for taking some time to talk to me today. It's my pleasure. Today we're talking about food, you know, and people love food that tells a story. Oh, yeah. But the real question is, what stories are the food we eat telling us? Today we're starting a new series of discussions that focuses on the past, the present, and the future, cooking strategies that will help chefs and restaurateurs tell those very same stories. So it makes sense then to take a look back at the foods and the food experiences that call back to the old days, if you will. Perhaps, maybe as a starting point, you can talk about what it's been like preparing food prior to modern agriculture and before the current era of mass food production. What what kind of went into that, that whole feel, that whole vibe? Sure. I mean, I think it's important to note that it's, it's easy to forget that it wasn't all that long ago. The Industrial Revolution cleared the path for a variety of different processing and distribution methods to feed the hungry masses. And it was at this point that food started to get further and further away from the people who would eventually eat it. Leading up to this uh, situation that we have now, which in my opinion is an overdependence on food that travels over 200 miles to get to our plates. Before this, for thousands of years, food was more or less folk art, kind of passed down generation to generation, and oftentimes without any written documentation for for anybody. Sure. Okay. But I recently read a book called Eight Flavors by Sarah Lohman, which I thought was really cool. Uh, She talks about all sorts of fun things. I I love food history in general and where we're coming from. I think, you know, having a better understanding of where we've come from helps us, number one, to be more comfortable with where we are at presently, and then also, you know, have an idea of where we're going in the future, uh, sort of inspirational, but, you know, just yeah. sort of like growing up, right? Like, if you know where yeah. you're coming from, then, you know, you know who you are, sort well, of Well, it's, it's very much a part of our tradition and our history, right? Right, for yeah. sure, for sure. Yeah, but in this book, she um, she talks about all sorts of neat stuff, like, um, you know, we'll, we'll, she answers, answers these questions that I get often as an educator, like, you know, what did what did people do before stand mixers, or before yeah. pasta rollers? And she she <laughs> How sounds, do they manage? Yeah, like, <laughs> what did we ever do? Yeah. Um, you know, usually people get that answer, and they're like, wow, that, that sounds terrible. But, you know, back then, you didn't have any other methods. So if you wanted pasta, you yeah. had to roll it by hand. It's they not that do. big of a deal. They yeah, they do. Yeah. But then she gets into stuff like, you know, what did people use to flavor, you know, cookies and, and, and things before, you know, vanilla was ubiquitous and, yeah. and you could find it everywhere. And it's really neat to find out that things like black pepper and rose water would go into so many of these different desserts. So she'll give uh, she gives these recipes to go along with these stories, which I think are really great and sort of add to you know the, the backbone of the conversation and sort of legitimize everything too it's neat i gotta ask what is rose water so rose water is an extract and it's basically gives the aroma of of roses to things in fact it's it's neat because it is as much as it was used way back when it's sort of seldom used now so when you put it into a buttercream or or a delicate cookie it really kind of uh it stands apart from most of, of, of the other sweets that we might eat does it just give an aroma, or does there actually some taste to it as well? There is a slight taste to it, but usually uh, chefs will try to downplay that because it is slightly bitter. 
Okay. So if you if you get more of this aroma before you eat the cookie, then when you do eat it and get something different, yeah. then it really sort of blows your mind. Okay, good. But yes, she. So you know, there's this concentration on on where we're going, and and, and but based on you know where we've been, most people know a mother have a, a mother or a grandmother that used or uses. Uh, you know, phrases or, or little, little uh, sayings like add a skosh of this or, you know, add a fistful of that. But they're, they're terms that are more or less designed to make the, the student or the cook or the baker analyze things a mm -hmm. little bit closer. You know, yeah. grandma's fist might not have been the exact size as your fist. <laughs> so you've got to sort of account for these, these changes. And, uh, you know, I, I just love diving into the, the story of, you know, where we, where we came from with all this stuff and what is the etymology of, you know, this term or that term. So like skosh, for instance, or uh, skosh or scotch, depending on how you pronounce it, is really neat, I think, because it comes from Japan. There's this word sukochi, which means uh, a little bit, which was taken over by uh, servicemen during World War II. Uh, back to the U.S. and all of a sudden it made its way into our vocabulary and people don't exactly know where it comes from, <laughs> but they use it nonetheless. And there is there are tons of parallels between that sort of uh, phrasing and food. Yeah, and I, the I, we eat. I had certainly never heard that phrase before. But you I, never I heard can, it? No, I had never heard that. And it's surprising because I, I can understand where you're coming from in terms of, you know, a mother or grandmother. I, I, right. I had a grandmother who lived to be 105 years old oh, yeah. and I... The, the number of stories that she would tell and sure. those sayings that she would, you know, add into those stories, it was, it blew my mind every time because half the time I'd have to stop her and say, you know, Grandma, what, what does that even mean? What are you saying right now? Sure. And she'd go on to explain it. And a lot of them had to deal with cooking and exactly what you're talking about right today. And, and this is it. I mean, coming coming to our history in, in such a romantic way. So we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, taking a look at past cooking techniques, past, uh, um, I guess, phrases, uh, getting up to where we are today in, in modern. So what, what else do you think uh, is, is a part of that when we're taking a look back? Well, when we, when we talk about these sort of blurred lines of, you know, use a pinch of this or a scotch of that or whatever else it is, use a fistful. Uh, again, it's relative to the experience that we've had in being taught this particular food. The beautiful aspect of that to me is that it, it really is sort of designed to build and bolster culinary intuition and culinary instinct, I suppose. You, you've, you've got to examine things a little bit more closely, yeah. um, but you're also you're internalizing them. It sort of becomes a part of you. It's not about just reading a recipe, which I think is dangerous to say the least, because <laughs> whoever writes this recipe knows nothing about your personal situation. They don't know what pots and pans you're using, the BTUs, your burner, and all that stuff. That's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought right. of that. Yeah. But, you know, Grandma didn't necessarily know that either. But Grandma <laughs> knew that you were smart enough to get it. And, you know, that's why, you know, we, we're taught this way. And a lot of people that are in food tend to be tactile learners, sort of like, you know, do it yourself and you'll figure it out uh, right. type, of, type of people. But, you know, they were usually there to show you. Mom or grandma was usually there to show you. You know, we used to have this in the industry where, it, you know, things were based on apprenticeship and you had your, you know, the master and you had the, the journeyman and, and the, the apprentice. And, and all along, you'd be, you know, sort of under the wing of somebody that knew better than you did. I'm not saying that you don't have this at all in the industry anymore, but with the job market being what it is and this industry being as 
let's say fickle in yeah. some ways right. uh, as it is it's it's tough to 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 spend enough time with somebody because number one from the master's perspective you could be training them for their next job which they will you know promptly leave you for yeah. as soon as is they've point. got the skills down good point uh, but then also from from the student's perspective there's just so much to learn from so many people and all this information is so accessible these days that oh, loyalty i think is waning yeah so that that's that's sort of a neat thing too. But you know, either way, when when your your compass uh, that you now have, you know, that grandma gave you or whomever gave you, uh, you this is sort of a wonky compass. It's not necessarily a hundred percent accurate, and you have to be there to uh, accept responsibility for what comes next. Which is why, in my opinion, this is one of the best teaching methods because it is it is forcing somebody to uh, if they don't internalize the lesson, they have to suffer the consequences. You're sort of very aware of what it is that is working and not working at the same time and you're sort of forced to own it foods that are created in this manner tend to be a little bit more rough around the edges uh, and, and perhaps have a little bit more charm to them one might call them artisanal but basically what they are is is folk art and it's passed on not from the mind or a piece of paper, but really from the heart. Yeah, but having that little rough around the edges, as you said, is not necessarily a bad thing either. Absolutely not. It's character. I yeah. think a lot of people appreciate that and maybe even more and more okay. as time goes on. So having this history and knowledge of past traditions, you know, how do you think it helps modern day chefs prepare you know, these old school, for lack of a better term, these old school meals and present them as menu options in their restaurants? How does that weigh today? How does that help them? It is very easy to overchef things, and it's very difficult to keep things simple. I think you can say this about most art, and I think it's important to offer food that is sentimental for people, food that connects with people. I mean, you said it that it's you're telling a story, yeah. And when you can do that with food, which doesn't, of course, just rely on the food itself, the ambiance and the environment that people are in. The, the presentation of things really, really matters. But when you can tell this story and convey a message through food, now you've really pulled people in. I mean, one of the things that I love most about food is how it is this sort of all sensory experience. And when the mind is truly engaged, uh, we tend to sort of, I, I don't, we read into the story and we, we tend to personify things that we otherwise might not relate to when when they're really sucked into that that narrative. Right? Yeah. Okay. So having these tra- these traditions, it seems like it's a pretty important skill to have, you know, especially if you're talking about bringing in nostalgia to your restaurant, you know, a tradition. But let's take it to the next step. Let's talk about plateware, you know, that, sure. that these recipes are being served on. Should this be a part of that equation? Does it matter? Does it provide additional detail absolutely i mean you can take a work of art that is absolutely beautiful standing on its own and put an ugly frame on it and it it doesn't serve the art very well i think that it's very important again talking about you know serving that that narrative the it's the canvas you know it, it, it is you know very very important if you're spending so much time working on this food you know you've you've got to present it in the right way and you know obviously we eat with our eyes first so you know from the moment that someone walks through the door of the establishment they're drawing conclusions yeah. and you know they might be judging in a certain way so when it comes down to the food itself you got to put it on a pedestal and if if you're doing modern food on old school plateware there's going to be a schism there and yeah. your customers are going to see it versus if you've got you know something that really matches what the story that you're trying to tell 
it, it feeds that and again just gets people further and further down the path and into the story that you are telling so is that speaking more to like the overall ambiance of the of the the restaurant as a whole or is it plate to plate or, or menu item to menu item does it matter I mean, I mean, all of it matters, Yeah. but the, as a consultant, I can't tell you how many times I've had to open people's eyes to the fact that lighting is so much. I okay. mean, it's, it's something that, you know, we, we hardly ever think of when we're there uh, as, as a consumer, but, you know, calming people is, is a big part of it. You know, some restaurants want people in and they want them out right away yeah. so they can turn those tables and and yada, yada, yada. But when it comes to making people comfortable and uh, in, in feeding them and in slowing them down a little bit so that you can tell that story. Tell that story, right. Oh, I think all of it, all, all of it should point in the, in the right direction. And that's why it is so important to sort of align yourself with the, with the general philosophy and really not deviate from that plan. So preparation is obviously pretty important in this discussion here. But what about the table side, the, the presentation? Should restaurant owners that are, you know, really embracing this idea of nostalgic recipes or traditional recipes, should they should they be changing up the way that they're they're serving their customers? Is is there any added benefit to that? Is it going to make things more difficult, more interesting for the customer? I think so. Yeah. I, I think so for sure. Yeah. Table side service is one of those, you know, weird throwbacks that people think about it and it's like, oh man, that's just that's too old school. But, you know, every good trend and every good level of service eventually comes around. Some of these things fall out of vogue. They fall out of fashion and we don't necessarily know why. It may just be that they're around for so long and no one's an innovator on the subject anymore. I think that this is a great way to be an innovator, to go back to something that was great and gives our customers a level of service that they have they have not had before in their lives in some situations, or at least you don't find it very often. It's definitely a way to separate yourself from the competition, I would imagine. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt whatsoever. Taking that, that, that approach to traditional and okay. But when you're when you're a customer at a restaurant that's that's very that's promoting tradition mm-hmm. and, and old school recipes and that I mean, how, how does that affect, I mean, does your wait staff have to even be involved? Do, do they need to be preparing these things that we're serving these, these meals to their customers in a different way? Well, again, I think it does come down to the concept and who you have working for you. Uh, there's, there's certainly a level of performance that's involved in this. So you yeah. wouldn't want to give this necessarily to you know, your most timid uh, server or busboy <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. Your 16-year-old high school student. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Would you like fries with that? Sir? <laughs> um, no, I, I, think that it's, uh, I think it's something that if, if you've got someone with a lot of character who is uh, great in front of people, who doesn't have issues with a, a, bit, a bit of performance, in their job, yeah. then I think it's fantastic, especially for somebody who's depending upon tips uh, for their money. You know, they, if, if you can wow somebody and give them something that they can't get elsewhere, it increases the value of what you're doing. And I think that that's good for everybody, yeah. especially the consumer, who all of a sudden now they're going to go back and they're going to tell people, wow, this is something that, you know, I, I didn't see yeah. uh, before. You know, when you go to, for instance, like an old school bar uh, and, and they're making a cocktail not based on their menu or, or even the ingredients that are seasonal at the time but what you prefer uh, that is such a unique and personalized experience that I think that it, 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 it really separates that place from the herd in a positive way. Have you heard about or considered maybe the, the chef that prepared this meal that was passed down from generation to generation in their family actually coming out to the oh, table sure. side to you know maybe tell that story. 
I've and done explain it, it to them. I've done it personally in yeah. restaurants. I okay. think that's, it's a fantastic thing to do. In fact, that was um, that was always a difficult thing for me to deal with as a chef was that I wanted to spend so much time in the dining room talking to customers that in the meantime, my sous chef and everybody else were like, hey, chef, <laughs> we, got, yeah, we got food to cook back here. Uh, but I do think that it's important because number one, you're you're putting a face to a name or a face to a concept, I suppose. But even furthermore, if if it is about telling a story that was passed on generation to generation, if you're not communicating that to the customers, then kind of what's the point? You yeah. know, why wouldn't you just do something new? I suppose you could add something maybe in the menu to help describe it a little bit, sure. but that's just kind of hinting at the overall story, right? <laughs> well, yes, this is this is true. I mean, if, if food is entertainment, number one, there should be a level of performance in there. But number two, people don't always want to come in and do that heavy lifting, right? Yeah. They're not going to sit here and, and use their eyes like a sucker to read <laughs> this thing. They want someone to explain the story for them. And that is sort of our job if we're in this sort of uh, entertainment yeah. field. What about blending tradition with special holidays or... Uh, special times throughout the year. Sure. Have you seen that in, in any of your uh, your history? Absolutely, your uh, tons of it. I you know, I could give you a bunch of examples of it, but it, it boils down to you know knowing your clientele and knowing what they're expecting when they walk in the door. So yeah. many people, I think, try to sort of dictate what they're what people are going to get without realizing that you've you've got to please these people. If, yeah. if you want them to come back, it's not just about bossing them into, you know, this or that or the other thing, but appealing to their sensibilities and, and understanding that, you know, well, number one, if it's a dietary restriction in a certain time of year, you absolutely have to, you know, fall in line with that or they're not going to be a happy camper. But aside from that, uh, you, you know, special events and, and making sure that people you know, get the level of service that they're expecting without having to worry so much about that side of it so that they can concentrate on their family or yeah. whatever this tradition is, is absolutely imperative. I think it's really important. I imagine as a restaurant owner, if you're going down this, this path of tradition and, and telling these stories that you also need to be aware of the location, right? And, and the region that this, this restaurant is in and no the doubt. people that live there. So you're not going so far left of what your customers may be be prepared for. Yes, sir. You got to do your homework. You got to do your homework. Yeah. Otherwise, you might be setting yourself up for fail. Great idea. Sure. But maybe the reaction, the response from your customers and then the subsequent word of mouth is not going to take off like you were planning on it. Absolutely. I Personally, at my restaurant, which was, was Block, where we did food from the Eastern Block, we ran into this problem. Did you? Uh, in, okay. in a few different ways. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm Ukrainian by descent on one side of my family. And, you know, there's this big argument of, you know, are, are you a are pierogi Ukrainian or are they Polish or, or whatever? And I mean, you get all this back and forth and people get very opinionated and sometimes upset if they don't get what they I expect. Imagine. Yeah. Right? Uh, but the, the truth of the matter in most of these situations is that these foods are coming from, you know, past cultures even. Pierogi right. are older than Ukraine or, or Poland as a country. I'm over in China doing Eastern European food. You know, you think about sauerkraut, you know, what do you think? What's, what's the ethnicity that you think of with sauerkraut? 
Uh, I think of putting sauerkraut on a brat. Sure, right. But it's a German thing to <laughs> it's do, It's a very right? German thing, yeah. But they were eating sauerkraut in China like a thousand years before Germany was ever a country. So Really? So, I, I, yeah. I didn't realize that. Absolutely. Fermenting all sorts of different vegetables. Interesting. So I, I think that, that is, that's kind of it. That you know, when you think of a particular concept and you go in with this expectation, that is, is set. The parameters of that you know, yeah. focus are set by your history and where you learned about this thing. So although you do need to be authentic in what you're doing. You don't necessarily want to pigeon your house, so pigeonhole yourself to something that is too specific. Yeah, you got to have a, a good variety in there, but still leaning towards the traditional end of things. Absolutely, you got to be fluid and you've got to be adaptable. Michael, thank you for talking to me today. I Bill, appreciate it. Was my it. pleasure. This is great. Hey, before we wrap up this first episode, again, we're going to be doing a series of a podcasts on the idea of food, past, present, future. Before we wrap up this episode, can you tell our listeners how they can reach out to you directly if they have any additional questions, they just wanted to you know, talk about these ideas? I'd love to. Yeah, sure. Uh, email would be the best way for me, msullivy at belter.com. That's M-S-O-L-O-V-E-Y at belter.com. Uh, otherwise, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn or my favorite way to, to show you all of the wonderful foods that we're cooking in, in the classes that we're teaching over at the Belter Superstore are via Instagram, where you can find me at my handle, Chef Michael Sullivan. Very good. And do you happen to have the uh, Superstore hours? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, we're open Monday through Friday, 8.30 to 5, and on Saturdays, 9 to 3 p.m. And they are located in Glendale? 4200 Northport Washington Road. Very good. As a reminder, you can also connect with us by visiting belter.com, as well as reach out to us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, consider subscribing to this podcast and share it with your friends and coworkers. In the next episode, Chef Michael and I will be continuing our food discussion by talking through some of the more modern food service trends and ideas. Until then, thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Belter Wire Podcast. Remember, you can visit us at belter.com for all of your restaurant supply, beverage, hospitality, janitorial, and licensed branding needs.